0: Production. Hello, a life of greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like minded people to share their wisdom, discuss the content in this episode, and give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To join, search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg. We have some very exciting announcements and giveaways. Plus, we also post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. To join my community, search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Psychiatrist Dr Bruce Perry is one of the world's leading experts on childhood trauma and his clinical research and practice focuses on examining the long-term effects of trauma in children, adolescents and adults. In his newest New York Times bestseller, What Happened to You, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey, there's a stunning evolution in his own approach to science and life and the matters of purpose and meaning. Bruce's insights speak to the flip side of social isolation, the intense experience many have now had of togetherness, and his deep understanding of alleviating suffering.
1: Love is everything. It really is what makes our species capable of surviving.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Dr. Bruce Perry is the author of many books, including Born for Love. More than anything, this conversation is about the search for purpose beyond the superficial side of society, healthy and unhealthy parenting practices and what it means to devote your talents in service of a better world. My hope is that my exchange with Dr Bruce Perry inspires you to deeply think about the suffering of those around you and to see that the answers you seek lie within one simple question, what happened to you? Dr Bruce Perry Harry, thank you for joining me today. I want to start by asking you, what made you want to get into studying childhood trauma?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, First of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I actually was studying early developmental stress uh, and the development of the brain back when I was an undergraduate uh, in college. And I... Both as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student, I was studying the development of the brain and how stress influenced that development. And when I became uh, went into medical school, the clinical specialty that really was closest to that line of work was uh, either neurology or psychiatry. And I did a neurology rotation and, you know, a lot of it was about strokes and seizures and it wasn't as interesting to me as behavior. So I was just, I thought it was more interesting. So I went into psychiatry and then child psychiatry. So really it, it was kind of a natural carry forward from the basic neuroscience research I was doing. And then I was very fortunate that I had a mentor who was one of the pioneers in adult post-traumatic stress disorder so when I was at Yale training uh, I worked with him and was part of the first group that looked at the biology of post-traumatic stress disorder in adults mm. and so both with that sort of with that background with the adult post-traumatic stress disorder and then early developmental stress stuff it kind of merged into childhood trauma
0: how do you define trauma
1: Well, trauma is a word we all use the word, right? Mm. You know, I'll I'll hear people um, throwing around a lot. Yeah, they'll say they were traumatized because they had to, you know, wait too long and in a line, and uh, they were. And again, it's it's a word that's been tough to define for our whole field. Yeah. Uh, but I, again, coming from the background as a sort of a neuroscientist, it, trauma is an experience that will alter the regulation of your stress response system in a negative way, basically. Mm-hmm. And that experience can either be a big capital T trauma like witnessing a shooting or being a victim of an assault or something like that. Or it can be just a pattern of activation of your stress response system where you literally have no control over when you get challenged um, or when you when you have your stress response system activated. And I think, you know, before we started formally this, this recording, we yeah. talked a little bit about COVID. And for a lot of people, what's been happening with COVID is an example of that uncontrollable pattern of stress. Yes that can make you feel increasingly dysregulated more anxious interfere with sleep uh, and and change your physiology the physiology of your stress response so we've been you know there are a lot of different things that we that can cause these changes in your brain and um so when you're studying trauma you, you want to look at the event uh, or the pattern of experiences uh you want to look at how somebody, you know, what goes on inside somebody during those experiences. And then you want to look at the effects. Does that, how over time does that change the way they think, feel, behave and their physiology?
0: Can you explain silent trauma to us?
1: Different people will experience uh, an event or an interaction differently. So, Let me give an example. Let's say that you are um, in a workplace and for whatever reason, uh, your coworkers and your supervisor have never made you feel welcome Mm. and they don't include you in things and they make snarky comments and you hear them giggling and then looking at you and you just feel like you don't belong. And so, literally, what can happen over time if you keep going to that workplace is that you'll start to feel really uncomfortable and anxious Sunday night before you have to go back to work on Monday. And you might find yourself uh, not losing your appetite or, uh, you know, over starting to scan the environment looking for things that would suggest that you're being marginalized. And so, something as as simple as social marginalization can result in a silent trauma. And and this is something that will be experienced more frequently by a person who is, for whatever reason, in an out group. Yeah. You know, if you happen to be, for example, um, the only Cree child in a Caucasian classroom in Canada you're highly likely to kind of get these nonverbal signals that you don't quite belong. Yes. And that can be a form of silent trauma.
0: That's so interesting. You have your amazing book, What Happened to You, that you and Oprah have written together. Why is it so important to ask the question to people of what happened to you?
1: Well, I'm I'm actually... um, By temperament, like an historian. I've always loved history. I've loved to read about history of all sorts. And uh, when you read history, what you realize is that if you want to understand the present, you need to know what happened before the present time. So Mm -hmm. if you want to understand the Middle East you need to read about the history of the founding of the state of Israel. You need to read about other aspects of, you know, what happened at the Balfour declaration. You need to understand what happened during world war one with the, the Ottoman empire. You know, you need to understand how all of these things happened to get to the present. And then it makes more sense. Um, you know, and, and so when, if you're a historian, it's the same way you look at Northern Ireland, you know, you understand the, Northern Ireland politics right now based upon the troubles. You understand the you know what's going on in Australia based upon the history of different groups that came to Australia and so forth. And it's the same way with a person that your personal history of relationships, your personal history of moving, your personal history of successes in school or failures in school or good relationships, bad relationships, all of that stuff it mixes together to kind of make you who you are in the present. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, once you get to, you know, a lot of times we'll see people and we'll meet them or we'll we'll see a troubling behavior or characteristic of that individual. And it'll drive us crazy. You know, like, why do they always do that? You know, what, what's wrong with them? Yes.
0: What's wrong <laughs> with them? You, that is a phrase never, that yeah, I've used ex, many times.
1: Exactly. Why do they always date people like that? Yeah. You know, and it's like, this is one of the smartest people I know, but yeah. they always... Get in relationships with jerks.
0: Yeah. How does that happen? Well, why do they always say that to me? They know that annoys me. Why do they keep doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And so what the, if you knew the person's personal story, their, yeah. their history, you would have more insight into why they were attracted to that kind of person or why they had a hard time being, setting boundaries and being firm or why they had a hard time, you know, why they're a close talker, you know, all the things that drive you nuts, you can kind of get an understanding of where they come from. And so the reason I think it's important to ask that question is it really means that you start your interaction with somebody really from a stance of curiosity rather than from a stance of judgment. And, And I think that that always leads to just getting to know somebody better.
0: You just mentioned then and you say in your book what happened to you that life experiences influence who you are and those experiences change the biology of your body and your brain. There's a bit in your book that I'd like to read out. It's a bit that Oprah has has written. The long-term impact of being whipped then forced to hush and even smile about it turned me into a world-class people pleaser for most of my life. It would not have taken me half a lifetime to learn to set boundaries and say no with confidence had I had been nurtured differently. As an adult, I am grateful to enjoy long-term, consistent, loving relationships with many people, yet the early beatings, emotional fractures and splintered connections that I experienced with the central figures in my life no doubt helped develop my solitary independence. In the powerful words of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Millions of people were treated just as I was as children and grew up believing their lives were of no value. People that come from horrendous upbringings and I mean, you know, Oprah's upbringing was is just was awful. And you see how much she's achieved now, which is unbelievable and gives hope to so many people. Firstly, what happens when children have that sort of trauma? And then how do you end up being like Oprah and able to achieve so much? So it's not like you have that and then it's like, sorry, you're written off. The rest of your life will be terrible. There is there is hope.
1: Yeah, there, there, there is, you know, the thing that's striking about working with kids and adults who've had really horrific backgrounds is how often they're healthier than you would have anticipated. Yeah. You know, how often they're still able to be a kind or still open to learning or still willing to try to form a relationship. And I, you know, I think in Oprah's case, and she'll talk about this really explicitly that for her, it was, there were non-family adults, teachers primarily who saw her and 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 gave her uh, a sense that she was special, that mm. she was bright, that she was good, that she was capable, and 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 she writes about this in the book. Her church community was part of that, but the school community was probably the most important part.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, I think that that's our in all of our research. What we find is that the people who are connected to family community or culture uh, have the ability to buffer stressors. So you can have all kinds of really terrible things happen, but if there are people around you who make you feel loved, who you feel connected with uh, that can help counterbalance some of the negative things. And so we, obviously we have a lot more to learn about this, but one of the key ingredients of sort of uh, getting through all of this stuff is um, having a healthy relationship with somebody who sees you as a special person. You know, they think that you're, they love you. uh, They try to be present and supportive in the ways that they can. And that it's, it's amazing how powerful that is.
0: Yeah. From everything that you've seen, and I know that you've been involved in so many Studies with children firsthand from your work, you've come into the lives of so many people who have struggled. How important is love?
1: Well, I, I think it's. I think love is. It's all. Love is everything. Yeah. I mean, it. It really is what uh, makes our species capable of surviving. Um, human beings in the natural world. Naked, slow, weak, no natural body armor, no special poison darts or anything. We're we're basically meat on feet. (laughs) And the the only reason we survived is that we were able to form loving bonds with other members of our species. Yeah. And create uh, a, a stronger, more functional, more flexible whole, which is the clan, the group. And... This allowed us to to basically survive in the natural world and then ultimately it allowed us to start to take advantage of this remarkable, and it was probably some weird genetic mutation, but we have this remarkable capacity in our cortex to absorb more bits of information per second than any other species. Mm. We can absorb it and we can store it. And so what happens is, we now live in the present time with the accumulated distilled experiences of thousands of previous generations that have been passed forward to us. And, and that's that's allowed us to be able to have a conversation across the globe yeah. in real time. I mean, all of this is an invention, both our language is an invention, the technologies are inventions and that's all because of this incredible capacity to create community and in community to create a sense of safety where people were able to have their cortex open for business because when you're under threat, you your cortex shuts down. So clan, family, connectedness, belonging makes you feel safe which opens up your cortex, which means that you can learn and store things and then process them in abstract ways and invent new things. And every generation just get a little bit smarter, a little bit better, a little bit more creative. And that's that's the history of humanity. And it's all based on the capacity to form and maintain loving relationships.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. If you put fear and love next to each other, would love always override fear?
1: You know, fear is powerful, mm. <clears throat> and fear has been used across the generations to manipulate and influence groups of people. And uh, in the, you know, the, I I I believe love always wins in the end.
0: So do I.
1: But it it doesn't always win in every individual's life, right? Yeah. I mean, there are individuals who uh, has uh, get in situations where fear and terror and pain and horrific things happen. But I think collectively that the human species, the human as a group, even though there may be instances and periods where there's fear and hate and death that impact members of our group, ultimately, our capacity to be loving is going to... overcome that and outweigh that. But we've certainly had incredibly brutal periods in the history of humanity.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, but I again, I'm, you know, if you sort of take us as a group, I, I do think that love is ultimately going to win.
0: You talk a lot, obviously, about the biology of your body and your brain. What effects does childhood trauma have on the brain?
1: Well, the primary effect is that it in it alters the activity and the reactivity of a set of really important uh networks that are that originate in the lower part of the brain and send connections basically to every other part of your brain and the rest of your body so when those systems kind of the, it's kind of like your grand central station. It's where everything f- that you're seeing and smelling, all the input from the outside world and all the input from the inside world goes into that area and that area processes it and then kind of sends out messages about what to do, right? And now if that system, that's, those set of systems become abnormally reactive, <clears throat> then you start to have problems with uh, you, you know, shutting down the top part of your brain so you're not going to listen to words as effectively you're going to start to be hyper vigilant and scan the environment for potential threat you're going to increase the physiology in your body higher heart rate increase muscle tone and what you do is you wear out your body Mm. you know you just keep your body and your brain on alarm and when you're in that state for an extended period of time it impairs your ability to learn to grow, to form healthy relationships, uh, to manage your heart rate, to manage your pancreas, and you're at increased risk for diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, learning problems, social problems, attention problems, depression, and you know, and, and you may or may not be familiar with the the what are called the ACE studies, which are kind of the adverse childhood experience studies that look at the correlation between bad things that happen in childhood and your health and welfare as and functioning as adults. So the more bad things that happen early in life, the more at risk you are for problems as you get older. And it's related to that physiology, the overactivity and overreactivity of those uh, regulatory networks that are in your brain. If,
0: however, you got therapy and you were seeking to change things in your life that had basically kept you in a terrible state because of your early childhood upbringing, there is a possibility of being able to, and I think a large possibility of being able to live a very happy and love-filled life.
1: Absolutely. Uh, there's a, no doubt about it. One of the things that, and again, my field is a young field. We have a lot more to learn. Yeah. And the brain's very complicated. But here's what we do know is that the systems in your brain that allow you to do anything, are they're changeable. Yeah. So you can change your ability to speak uh, language. You, you know, you could learn a new language if you were 70 years old, if you wanted to. You can develop better social skills. You you have to practice, but you can develop them. So you can change the brain. And, And that's the great thing about the brain. It's changeable. So these stress response networks that become abnormally activated from earlier life stress, you can change them back. You can have experiences that are consistent, predictable, nurturing experiences can over time make those systems become better regulated Yeah, and the most efficient way to do that is to be in a relationship with somebody who loves you
0: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. i mean you know because it takes love well let me give an example i think about when you have a baby right they wake you up at night they exhaust you they yeah. take your calories um they spit up on you, you they poop on you sometimes, they pee on you when you're changing yes. them. And we love them. And so all what keeps us taking care of that child who's really a complete drain of energy, right?
0: Yeah. Is
1: that we love them. Yeah. And so when you're with somebody who has trauma-related problems later on in life, a lot of times they're going to act in ways that would drive most people away. Yeah. They're going to be impulsive, they're going to be inappropriate, they're going to be angry, they're going to blow up, they're not going to listen to you, uh, you know, they'll be exhausting in other ways. But your capacity to be loving so that you'll be present, you'll be attentive, you'll be attuned, and you'll be responsive if that's what's going to help them heal. Mm. And that's why love is so important. You know, and this is why therapy, where you pay somebody to be present and do that work with you, is okay. I mean, I don't have anything against therapy, but what really changes people who have had trauma-related problems is when they can find people who are in their lives who don't have to be paid.
0: Yeah.
1: They're present because they care for them. They're a good friend. They're a coach who's invested in them. You know, they're they're somebody who's going to be there and, and be present, attentive, attuned, and responsive. Um, just because I think you're awesome, yeah. Or so, and that and that's where a lot. We tried to write about it in the book a little bit about how powerful connectedness is. Mm. That if you are, if you belong to a group. If you're part of a community and a culture, and and there are people within that sort of broader culture that are willing to be present for you in these ways, you've got these incredible healing opportunities that will allow you to tolerate a lot of the, and, and get through a lot of the stressors.
0: It's so true. When you see those little communities, like I even see it with my children's school, I remember I was off sick many years ago for a little bit and the community was just so, you know, we'll bring you this, we'll bring you that. I didn't want anything, but the community was so beautiful and even now in a the time they know that I work a lot. If I'm working on this, there's a million mothers that want to pick up my kids or do this. I don't even need to ask them and there's just a hundred sea of hands of people that, that will help me. And I always think to myself, it is so beautiful to feel so loved by these people that they might not be my good friends, they're just people that I spend time with and I adore. And it is that sense of community where you th- you walk away and you feel very fulfilled because you know yeah. that people care. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and that you know honestly, that's that's kind of the core message of this book: yeah. is that it, you know community and connection are at the heart of our the success of our species. Yes. And what keeps community in connection is love. I mean, loving, you, you care for people.
0: Yes.
1: And, and love of all sorts. Not You know, I mean, we use that, that's another term that we use kind of loosely, but it, I think you know what I mean. It's just, y- you can have, you can love somebody in that community um, in a way that leads to you sacrificing your time, effort and energy f- for their better interests, yes, and that's a wonderful quality in in our species.
0: It is. You write about how the first two months in a child's life are extremely <clears throat> important. Why is that?
1: Well, it it goes back to that that set of regulatory networks I talked yes. about. That that they're because they go everywhere in the brain, and because they go everywhere in the body, the they their developmental history is important. So they need to get the right kinds of experiences so that they become regulated properly. And, and that happens in utero and then in the first couple of months of life. And so, but once they get set, you know, kind of once you've uh, tuned up that system, that system tends to be pretty uh, resistant to negative changes. So... In other words, early life experiences in the first couple of months where the mother is cared for and the mother can then in turn do the parallel process and care for her child leads to this well-regulated stress response capability that makes the baby better capable of tolerating future stressors Mm. and, and is resilient, basically. And, and that's why the first couple of months are so important. And the, the irony is, in our society, a lot of people kind of view that time of life as, you know, whatever. Yes. You know, they, they don't hear what we're saying. You know, we can take the baby to a party because they just fall asleep. And, they, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I we have, a, again, we have a lot of work to do to kind of educate the population about this. But I think, by and large... Um, the, the better we do to take care of young families and give them the time to be the good parents they want to be, mm. the better off our society will be.
0: You say, whenever I'm trying to understand someone, I wonder about that person's brain. Can you tell us the story of Mike from your book, who has PTSD from his time in Korea? Yeah,
1: was, Mike was one of the first... People I worked with as a training psychiatrist. And I had, um, as I mentioned before, I'd been trained as a neuroscientist. I had even had a lab at that point of my own studying the development of the brain. But I didn't know that much about traditional psychiatric stuff. And so I was a trainee and I came in and it was assigned Mike. And he was a, a veteran of the Korean War and as it turns out I, many listeners may not know about much about the Korean War but it, in the beginning part of the war it was incredibly brutal um, and the U.S. forces were overrun by the Chinese and lots of units were isolated and he was in the unit that everybody's killed except him and um, and so he had lots of terrible trauma related memories hit what we call post-traumatic stress disorder, which resulted in sleep problems, pervasive anxiety, episodic uh, re-experiencing and what people think of as flashbacks. And, and he was a mess and he handled it by drinking. So, and of course, when you drink a lot, then that has a whole secondary set of problems. So, He was from a relatively wealthy family, so he didn't get fired. He just got promoted up to a position of incompetence within his own family business, marginalized. But he just drank himself almost into oblivion and then ultimately started to seek help. And he got better, he quit drinking, but he felt like he was always jumping out of his skin. And uh, he kept coming in and telling me that, you know the the only time that he ever really gets any sleep is on Saturday nights uh, after dance club and you know I was like whatever <laughs> I thought it's because he was drinking you know yeah. and he just wasn't telling me and and then he said that he he did something to his hip or his knee or something and he he got some physical therapy and the physical therapy involved uh, massaging you know getting a massage at one point and he fell asleep on the massage table and he would come and tell me these things that, you know, pattern, repetitive, rhythmic stuff was regulating. Uh, and I just was not really listening. And, uh, uh, ultimately, uh, he came in and he wanted me to try to explain to his girlfriend, uh, why he was so messed up. And I honestly didn't, you know, he sort of took me by surprise. I didn't know really how to explain it. So I, I kind of reverted to what I knew. I knew a lot about the brain. So I just sort of drew this upside down triangle version of the brain. And I said, okay, there's these systems that are involved in stress and his are overactive. And uh, and then and literally while I was describing it to him, it sort of crystallized to me that what was happening to him with these flashbacks, you know, that, that the, the lower part of the brain processed the experience before the top part of the brain. And anyway, I ended up, sort of having some insights of my own that led to me thinking about things differently. But I tried to explain this to Mike in a way I think that was kind of helpful for him. But what I really ended up doing over time was recommending that he get uh, more of this, what we call somato body and then sensory, you know, your eyes, your ears. So somatosensory uh, intervention that was, essentially regulating, and it it was something that would be quieting to the these, these regulatory networks in the lower part of the brain. And it was really the first time that I started to think about what we now think of as our neurosequential model, that the brain processes information in a sequential way. You know, when you look at me across the airwaves, the first part of your brain that sees me actually gets input about me is not your cortex, the smart part of your brain. It's not the smart, it's, it's really the dumbest part of your brain. It's the brainstem that your little, you know, reptilian brain. And then that part of your brain is taking in the way I look, the tone, my tone of voice, and it's matching it against your previous history with people who look like me, sound like me, talk like me, and you're making judgments about me. Uh, You know, you're getting emotional, elicited stuff even before the information gets to your cortex Mm. for you to hear my words.
0: You say a young child experiences the world through the filters of adults. So this was really interesting because you talk about quite a few people will say, I'm not going to leave my partner till my kids are older. And that's not a great thing. But then there's also the big triggers of divorce when children are young, which have a huge yeah. impact as well. Is there a good outcome if parents separate from each other?
1: Yeah, you know, that's, I get asked this a lot. Um, so one of the things that we know is that human beings are very, um, because we're so relational huge parts of our brain are reading and responding to other people. We're, we're kind of contagious to their nonverbal cues. And so, you know, if a mother's depressed and the child sees that mm. the mom can't say, Oh, I'm fine, honey. The child knows that there's something going on. Uh, or if a parents fight and the children literally there's studies that show that a parents argue and fight that the baby asleep in the crib will literally process that information. Wow. They they perceive that, they hear it and it influences their stress response. So now I I don't want to terrorize people and make them feel like oh my god, I have to only whisper around my children. Yes. Uh, and it's okay to have conflict around your kids, but it's also important to repair around your kids,
0: right? Mm. You
1: know, rupture and repair is just part of human communication. So I think what's important to remember is that you know, extreme conflict is not good for children. It's just not, it's confusing. It's overwhelming. It, it will disrupt their normal development. And if you're in a relationship with somebody where there's episodic extreme conflict uh, or episodic extreme coldness, like complete like relational disengagement, yeah, either one of those are not good for kids to see. And it's probably worth... Uh, you know, it's it's never one of these things like this is right and this is wrong or this is good and this is bad. It's sort of like this isn't good, but this is worse. And so you're always sort of having to do that when you're deciding about how to split up if you're parents and, you're, and you have kids or if you're married and you have kids. And, uh, you know, I think part of what has to happen is if you make that decision as adults, you should think very carefully about how to transition that with the kids and reassure them, educate them, talk with them. And, um, you know, you can make that process easier for kids um, and you can make it harder for kids. And it's, and there are experts out there who know how to help yeah. guide parents through it. But, you know, I think in the end, it, it's there's not a one-size-fits-all solution because there are times when you, it's clear that, that parents should separate because it's just so conflictual. And then there's times when, um, you know, it's it might be worth trying to salvage something. So, yes.
0: you talk about childhood triggers in your book. Can you tell us the story about Sam?
1: Sam was a boy who lived in a what we call a residential treatment center in in the U.S. Basically, there were about eighty kids that lived in a dormitory like facility, and they lived there because they'd failed placements in previous foster homes. They'd run away or they'd blown up the situation in one way or another. And he was a boy who had been sexually abused by his father and um, in a pretty severe way, and then uh, ended up in foster care. And then, you know, had, I think like 12 placements before he ended up at this place. And um, he was actually doing really well there. And and then the school year changed and the next year he, he started to have lots of problems in a math class. And there was a new math teacher who was a guy, really a wonderful teacher. Um, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. They asked me to see if I could understand why they were fighting and why he was getting kicked out of class. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I watched, I talked to Sam. He didn't understand it. He just said, the teacher doesn't like me. The teacher had no idea what was going on. Um, and um, so I just kind of left it at that. And one day the father came because there were court ordered mandatory visits from the parents. And so the father came and they had to be supervised visitations. And I, because somebody didn't show up, I ended up being the supervisor. So that means you just sit in the room while the, the child and the father play. And... Um, so the father was late, but he came in and he smelled like just like Old Spice Aftershave. And um, and I was I was just sitting in the corner kind of just daydreaming. And my dad wore Old Spice Aftershave. And so I found myself literally as the father came in and sat down with this boy, I started thinking about my dad and, and I remembered the Old Spice Aftershave. And then I realized, wait a minute. I'm actually spelling Old Spice Aftershave. And so I went over to the father and he'd splashed it on because he was trying to cover up the fact that he'd been drinking. Anyway, so I, it, it made me realize that, well, maybe there was an olfactory evocative cue. Remember, remember how I mentioned that
0: yes.
1: sensory input comes in the first place it's processed is in the lower part of the brain. And so the lower part of the brain will act before you even get to the top part of the brain to interpret the present situation accurately. So I went and I talked to the math teacher, and sure enough, the math teacher used Old Spice deodorant. And when we changed his deodorant, they no longer had any conflicts. Uh, I sat down and explained this to both of them, and they ended up, uh, over time, having a really good relationship. But what was happening was, Sam would be sitting there doing his math and the math teacher would walk by and it would be an evocative cue and all of a sudden he'd feel threatened and dysregulated and um, he didn't understand it, but he just, his body was making him feel distressed Mm. and dysregulated and um, it led to all kinds of conflictual interactions. But as soon as there was no longer that evocative smell, um, they got along and formed a really good relationship.
0: It's such so, a fascinating story. How do we bring up children to lead a life that allows them to then flourish?
1: Well, you know, I think a lot of raising kids to be healthy is <laughs> is modeling, you know. It's I think parents underestimate how powerful Doing things yourself, you know, just being the way you are in front of your child is influencing the way they see how the world should go. So if you are respectful to other people, if you are respectful to them, if they hear you say thank you, if you want them to be courteous and they see you be courteous, that's a lot easier job. If uh, you want them to to be courteous, but you're rude to the waiter or you're rude to other people they're going to have a hard time becoming courteous. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is be what you want your child to be. The second thing is that the more we recognize that children uh, will benefit most from us being present uh, as us, not as anybody else. You know, we don't, we don't have to be Dr. Seuss. We don't have to be Rafi. We don't have to be any, we have to be, just be yourself but they want you. they want your time. Now the good news is they don't want your time hundred percent. you know they want they want little slivers of true sincere presence. And then honestly, after a while, the truth is, and I know you all can take it, you're boring. Yeah. So th- they'll leave they just want to know that when I want you, you're right there. Yeah. and then they'll have their five, you know, and sometimes it's like 10 seconds. 10 seconds of you're really here, you're really paying attention and and then they'll wander off and do their thing and then they'll come back and they'll want another you know touch base again. But if you're on the phone or if you're doing something else, when they come back for that that you know home base visit, then they feel dysregulated, marginalized. And then that's when they like, mommy, 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 or they'll throw things or they'll do whatever. So it's one of the hardest things to learn to do is to give in to those moments. Just let just the more you're present, the fewer they're going to be. And the more you're present, the shorter they're going to be. Yeah. And so be learning to do that I think is really important for for kids. And then the other thing that's really important is to make sure that they have lots of opportunities with other people around who you think can be positive influences on them. You yeah. know, you mentioned your community for your child. that That's a wonderful thing for mm. your child. And because that there's strength in diversity of experience, diversity of problem solving, diversity of language, all of that stuff, the more your children are exposed to it, the stronger they'll be.
0: Is there ever a point where parents over nurture? You know, there's sometimes a lot of mothers; they can do everything for their kids, and they helicopter parent a little bit as well. Can that have adverse effects?
1: Yeah, it's actually it's it's a big problem, in, in at least in the society in the U.S., yeah. there are a number of children who are not given opportunities to sort of wander off and explore and fall down and then come back and and get comforted because the parent will not let them go do those independent yeah. things. And that's actually not good for kids because those systems I talked about that, those stress response systems, the pattern of activation that leads to resilience involves stress mm-hmm. You want to stress, stress is good for children, but it's moderate, predictable, and controllable. But if you never let a child go have stress, they'll never strengthen their stress response systems. Yeah. And then when you put them in a, you know, you put them in a situation where they have to sort of regulate, they can't do it. Yeah. And we find that most of our school refusal and school attendance problems with over-anxious kids are from parents who have previously been over-hoovering. Yeah. Helicopter parents.
0: I see that a person that I know kind of went through their life being very much given everything they needed and they were never kind of taught to fend for themselves, never really worked or anything, and they've gotten to a stage where they have their own kids and all of that, but they can't be put in any stressful situations. They weave through life, avoiding anything that could be stressful, never had a proper job or anything. And I see it coming from that childhood upbringing where they just were never put or never exposed to anything overly stressful.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the irony is that parents do that because they think that yeah. they're doing something good for their child. Yeah. But in the end, it really is not good for your child. Dis- I can't emphasize enough how important it is for a child to learn how to understand that distress is not gonna hurt you. Yeah. Being uncomfortable is not gonna kill you. You know, hiking in the rain is fine, getting dirty, is good for you. Yeah. Um, being hungry, it's important. Being cold, it's good for you. You know, and this is one of the reasons I like outdoor stuff because yeah. it's a great way to actually experience um, moderate distress mm. that ultimately will lead to uh, strength. But if you never, you go, oh my God, it's gonna rain. So let's turn around and go back to the trailhead. Like, you know, that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. Even if you don't have the right equipment, get wet for a little while
0: yeah.
1: and learn how to, you know, next time you go hiking, you'll you'll remember to bring your poncho. You know, it's this is how you learn.
0: Yeah, I talk about it quite a bit in the podcast about stepping into the unknown and how people just can't yeah. take change when they haven't always been in their comfort zone. And when we do things that we wouldn't normally do, we end up seeing, oh, we can do this. And you just do a little bit and a little bit further and a little bit further. So then when change occurs, you're not so struck by it where you just break down because you can't cope.
1: Exactly. And and Sarah, you just described much more succinctly what I just (laughs) was trying to say. (laughs) Um, That's the exact, that's exactly it. That, you know, if you go out and you learn that, and experience a little bit of discomfort, but then ultimately succeed. And then the next time you can handle a little bit more discomfort and still succeed. All of that just makes you stronger and more capable of dealing with stuff in the future. And, and I think we don't do enough of that in our uh, with our kids in our society.
0: Yes, such an important message. How important is it to know that you are enough?
1: Well, yeah, that's, I, I I literally was just writing an email to somebody uh, about an hour ago about this. Um, It's amazing how many people are incredibly accomplished, gifted, you know, they have so many positive things, yet they'll still feel inadequate in some way. Mm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who know a lot more than I do about where this comes from, but. I think I just I think it's one of the it's one of the most important things to if, for us to help children and adults mature is to help them get a realistic understanding of what families are really like or like what. You know, that not everybody looks, has a perfect body, has a perfect BMI, has a perfect ability to sort of, uh, you know, knit and read and invent a new dot-com company in the same week. You know, I mean, there's, you know, you hear this stuff. Everybody's doing all this amazing stuff. It makes everybody feel inadequate. And I've met a few people who are like really good with themselves. who are like, hey, I'm good, you know. Like I'm I'm all right, but not many,
0: Yeah,
1: not many. I mean, and I've met a lot of people
0: Mm.
1: and, you know, I think it's a pervasive feeling that people feel like they're not enough. And I think a lot of it comes from when, from experiences from when you're young and experiences for when you're forming your self-image, you know, Um, you know, it's hard for our brain not to be influenced by the media yeah, And we all grow up with, you know, bombarded with, you know, tweets and images of this person at the beach and images of, you know, just it's hard not to feel like you're not enough if you look at everything that's out wow. there. Um, so I think it's a hard thing to fight, but I think it's really important to keep articulating it. Um,
0: what is the best way to make sure that we are that we realize we are enough.
1: Well, the mo- most powerful thing is is the mirrors, the relational mirrors yeah. you have in your life, right? That's what that's where you really get. If you if you've got a real relational mirror of somebody that says, "Oh my god, you're beautiful." That is actually going to be more powerful than all of the other media stuff that's out there that might counterbalance yeah. that. Um, but That's, you know, a lot of people don't get that, you know, a lot of people don't have that relational density where they feel um, as uh, important or powerful or cared for or special. Um, And I, you know, I I think, uh, I think that's the the primary way that we develop our sense of self is through other people's, the, the way other people view us. And the funny thing about human, the human brain and that sort of relational reward that we get, the systems in our brain that make us feel pleasure um, and kind of that sense of positive self-worth, they get activated. But then they only stay activated for a little bit of a half-life, right? So let, somebody says, Oh my gosh, uh uh I love you and uh and you go, Oh my god, I love you too. And it's a wonderful moment and you feel awesome, right? Mm-hmm. And and but you want to hear it again like a minute later, yes. right? Tell me
0: again. <laughs> right? And God it's forbid like it that last. love should be taken away. Oh, it's devastating.
1: Exactly. And it does and it and, and that moment doesn't sustain you for Forty years, yeah. right? So you have to have other moments where you are fully present with each other and you say "I love you," and and it's important. And and what happens is that uh, a lot of these relational, a lot of relationships get into this inertia uh, where, oh my God, I, I it's been two weeks with my child, and if I actually look at what I've said to my adolescent child, I've said, "Where's your homework?" Uh, make your bed brush your teeth do this I I haven't been a good mirror for this child you know I haven't said oh my god have I you're doing a great job Uh, let me let's spend some time let me listen to you you know they do studies on how much time parents spend with adolescent kids and it's like you know minutes Mm. minutes a day in 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 terms of real interactive conversation. And none of us really would intend to do that, right? We'd be like, oh my God, we love our child. But I don't, it's not a lot's going to happen in a minute.
0: No, it's important information to know what is the best advice that you have ever been given? (laughs)
1: Love the land. I think that's the best advice. And it was, it was good advice for a lot of reasons. I mean, and it functions on different levels. Uh, I, I think it, it it's about the impermanence of life. Mm. And the, the context was, I mean, it was about this sort of this uh, over-focus on yourself. And um, it was a, from a wise, wise person who was basically, you know, like, lo- love the land, you know, don't worry, you know, that's, you're over-focused on how you feel right now. Um, and it, it's related to other advice that I've been given that the best way to really help yourself is to help somebody else.
0: Mm.
1: And um, it really is, and we do, we use this clinically all the time, that, that people who are depressed and feel upset about themselves, we assign them other people to go help. And it really makes, it just, it sort of very quickly shifts your focus. If you quit being so focused on yourself uh, and engage with the rest of the world, um, you know, the relational world, it really makes a big difference. But I thought that that other piece of advice was so important because, you know, we human beings, you know, we're, we're just part of a much bigger whole.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um you know, I think if you love the land, it's um, it sort of puts perspective into the impermanence of of our our lives. It's kind of like looking at the stars when you're on a camp out, you know. You kind of...
0: You realize you're only a speck of something much bigger.
1: Right. And you worry about the test on Mondays, probably not in, in the whole sum of yeah. things... Nothing to worry about.
0: So, what's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn?
1: Mm. I think I'm still working a lot on being a better listener. You know, I'm I'm a pretty good listener, but it's so easy to let the busyness of life pull you away from that Mm. again and again and again. I mean, I catch myself all the time going, wow, I just didn't really listen to what you were saying. And I mean, it's unbelievable how often it happens and having cell phones and appointments and other, you know, and, and success. I mean, success is the biggest distractor ever. Um, you know i think failure is one of the great things about failure is that it it allows more opportunity for solitude and and reflection success messes that up mm. so
0: what's your greatest hope for society today
1: i my greatest hope for society today is to kind of re uh, become more aware of kind of rediscover the the power of connection, the power of relationships. And I think when that happens, all kinds of stuff is going to get better. You know, I think obesity will change. I think, uh, yeah, because I think all these things, substance abuse, obesity, um, cardiovascular disease, mental health problems are all related to disconnection. And actually, we've kind of seen this during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. Every single of those, you know, people are eating more, there's more sort of eating for comfort there's more feeling disconnected dysregulated more depression uh and it's part of it's because we're we're fighting our biology our yeah. biology is to be together and keep when we stay apart from each other it's really hard on our physiology so i hope that society sort of re recaptures the power of connection
0: what is a life of greatness to you
1: I think a life of greatness is when somebody leaves behind in other people's hearts and in their heads, goodness, Mm -hmm. good things.
0: Bruce Perry, thank you so much for all the unbelievable work you're doing. It's so, so important. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to saragrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.